brought a copy of God's Word with you this morning, and I'd like to ask you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, where we have been the entirety of this Christmas season, and the first chapter again. And we're going to read just the last few verses of this chapter. Um, We pick it up not long after John the Baptist declared Jesus was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world, and he was the, the, the Son of God. Immediately following, um, some of John's disciples began to follow Jesus. And in this portion of this last portion of the first chapter of John, we we see Jesus continuing to call disciples unto himself. And uh, we will see the, the, the calling of Philip by Jesus and then Philip's introduction of Nathaniel to Jesus. If you're physically able, I would like to ask you if you would to stand as we read the word of God today. And in this passage, we will see the very first reference to Jesus in the Gospel of John as king. John chapter 1, picking up in verse 43, this is what the Word of God has to say. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree. I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You're likely familiar with the title, King of Kings. It's a, it's a title given to Jesus. He is the king of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. Scripture declares Jesus as the king of kings, but what does it mean to say of him that he is king, and what does it mean to declare him the king of all other kings and the Lord of all other lords? In the Old Testament, the title of king of kings is used at least three times that I'm aware of. And all of them are referencing earthly kings, and it's a way to indicate that those earthly kings in their moment, in their lifetime, in their rule, had no no challenger, no equal. In Ezra chapter 7, Artaxerxes is referenced, uh, references himself as the king of kings when he gives a letter to Ezra the priest and gives permission for the Jews to return uh, to Jerusalem and, in fact, even funds the, um, the return and the rebuilding 
of the temple there. And he says, I'm the king of kings. There's nobody that opposes me, challenges me in the world today. In Ezekiel chapter 26, God himself refers to Nebuchadnezzar as the king of kings. When God declares that he's going to use Nebuchadnezzar to bring about judgment upon Tyre. Then the third reference would be Daniel. Daniel, when uh, Daniel uh, refers to Nebuchadnezzar as king, when his, when, uh, when, his, uh, when his dream is being interpreted, he refers to him as king of kings. Now, all three of these references indicate that the king had no earthly challenger or maybe better said, no earthly equal. Now, you and I don't live in a, a, a government ruled by a monarch, and so we're not familiar with those kind of dynamics. Maybe the, the closest thing that you and I might say, though it's not analogous perfectly, so sometimes when we talk about the president of the United States, we'll say the leader of the most powerful nation in the world. What we're trying to communicate there is that that position, the, the person who holds that position doesn't have an equal. There may be other presidents, there may be other prime ministers, but, but they are not as powerful, they are not as great, they are not as equal to the president of the United States. However, though these kings had no equal in the day of their rule, they could not and they would not maintain their place of authority forever. All of the kings of the Old Testament that were called king of kings and every president and prime minister who may have been called the leader, the most powerful leader in the world, all will either have or will succumb to the frailty of flesh. They will die and someone else will take up their position and rule their, their land. In the New Testament, the first reference to Jesus as king of kings comes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul encourages the church to remain faithful until Jesus returns. And he writes this, he says, which we will display at the proper, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But what probably your mind thinks of mostly when you think of Jesus being referenced as the king of kings comes from the revelation and the vision of John. So in, in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, it says of Jesus, they will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. And he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those who, with, who, with him are called and chosen and faithful. And then later in chapter 19, it says of Jesus, on his robe and on his thigh, he has his name written, king of kings and Lord of lords. The kingship of Jesus is not just a New Testament idea, though. It is a theme that runs throughout Scripture from the very beginning to the very end. When God promised to David, King David, that his throne would be established forever and one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever and ever, he was speaking of Jesus. When the prophet Isaiah prophesied about a child that was going to be born, he spoke about him as one whose the government would rest upon his shoulder. He was speaking about Jesus when he said, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, given and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah was speaking about Jesus. Micah, the prophet Micah, promised that a ruler of Israel would come from Bethlehem when he wrote, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who shall be a ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Micah was talking about Jesus. When Gabriel, the, the angel, announced to Mary that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit, he told her in, those, in that moment that her child would be a king. When he said these words to her, Luke chapter 1, he, he, he said to Mary that he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there will be no end. And of course, Gabriel was speaking of Jesus. When the Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, they were looking for the king of the Jews. Do you, have, do you know how many Magi came from the east? I don't either, because the scripture doesn't say. But I bet you in your mind, you were all thinking three, weren't you? We think three because there were three gifts. When they found Jesus, they worshiped him and presented him gifts. And all three of those gifts were gifts that were appropriate to give to a king. The current political leader in that day was a man by the name of Herod. Herod was so afraid that there was someone who had been born in his realm that had a claim to his throne that he attempted to murder Jesus by killing every boy that was two years old and, 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 and under from, 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 uh, from Bethlehem and all the surrounding areas. Herod was afraid of a king. In this passage that we read this morning, we have the first reference in John's gospel referencing Jesus as king. What I want you to see today from this passage is how we are to respond to the king, Jesus. From the very beginning this morning, I want you to understand something. If Jesus is king, then obedience to his commands, submission to his will are not things that we have to debate or think about. If he is indeed the rightful king, if he is indeed the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the only right response is to bow the knee and obey his command. Amen. Jesus is king. Nathaniel will declare it. He's the first to voice it in the Gospel of John, though it is the kingship of Jesus drips from the beginning to the very end of John's testimony. And I want you to see from this passage these things this morning. Number one, when you understand that Jesus is king, it requires of you that you submit to the Lord, that you submit to his authority over you. Secondly, that when you submit to the authority of God, you are submitting to the rightful king and you want others to know the rightful king. And so that propels you to invite others to follow him. And then lastly, 
when you confess him as Lord and King of your life, there's something that happens. What you think you know of Jesus is only the beginning. But the glories and the majesties and the wonders to be known are still yet to be understood. There is more to see. There is more to know of the glory of God. Let's begin with submitting to the lordship of Jesus. I see that very simply in verse 43. So look with me back into your passages, into your, in, into your Bibles, where, it, where there's this, this very simple sentence. And almost, there is no description about what follows it. And I think that's important. So in verse 43, it says, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, two-word command, follow me. Now, friends, if Jesus is indeed king, and if Jesus rules your life, then that, it, by definition, that means that you must obey the king. John records that Andrew heard John the Baptist's declaration that Jesus was the Lamb of God. And it says in verse 40 of this chapter that, that, he, that he immediately began to follow Jesus. Andrew would bring his brother Simon Peter to Jesus in verse 41 and 42. And now in Galilee, Jesus finds Philip and speaks a very, very simple command to him. He simply says, follow me. There is, I mean, the, 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 the simplicity of this is not by chance. If I want you to do something and I call you up on the phone this week, I'm probably going to start with an explanation. Hey, listen, we've got these needs and I've got this stuff and I think you're, you're skilled or you have the ability to do that and didn't know if you have a, a, available time and didn't know if you'd be interested in it. I'd have a long conversation with you to ask you to do something. None of that is in this passage. Jesus meets Philip and he simply says, follow me. John doesn't record any details as to what Philip said. Philip asked any questions or even how Philip physically responded. Did he, did he sigh? Did he gasp? It simply says, follow me. And then in your English translation, there's a period right there. And that period between verse 43 and 44 in our English translations, I think, carries a ton of weight. We know that Philip believed and we know that Philip obeyed because of what he does next. And before we move on to how Philip obeyed, I, I want us to consider, I want us to consider that he obeyed, that he obeyed and why. Acknowledging Jesus as king is much more than just agreeing that he has a really neat title. Acknowledging Jesus as king means that you recognize he has full authority over you. Now, you and I do not live in a monarchy. We're Americans. We don't like monarchies. We, got, we fought a revolution to get rid of our king. And so we're, it's very near and dear to us that we are not ruled by a sovereign. If the president of the United States were to show up here today and ask for you to do something for him, you can choose to oblige or not to oblige. He cannot demand you to do something. He can't show up and say, drive me to the store and buy me a Coca-Cola. Not that the president would do that, but he can't. The president can't call you up and say, I need you to mow my grass. 
president can't command that of you because he's not a monarch. He is not sovereign. The only thing the president can do is demanded and commanded and limited by the laws of this land. He has to get Congress to pass a law and by only them universally uh, exercised over the whole nation is there is there power there, but by his own self, under his own sovereignty, he cannot demand you to do anything. He can ask you to do something. You may choose to do something for him, but he cannot command you to do something out of his own sovereignty. That's not so with a king. That's why you call a king a sovereign, because subjects of the king don't have the ability to choose what they want to obey and not to obey. When the king shows up and says, jump, you ask how high on the way up. Jesus is the king of kings. He is the king of kings. Listen to me. He is the king of kings. And we must obey his commands. I wonder if John gives no description to Philip's reaction to Jesus' commands because Philip did not debate whether or not he wanted to obey, but obeyed immediately because he recognized who Jesus was. Friends, the command still stands. Listen to me. The King of kings and the Lord of lords is still commanding, follow me. And your response to that command indicates who you understand to be the true King of kings. Those who recognize who the true King is testify to that by obeying the commands of the King. But not only did Philip obey the king, but he also surrendered to the king's will. Now, the command that Jesus gives was not a command to accomplish a one-time task. Notice this. Jesus commands Philip to follow him. And this command, by just these two simple words, is unqualified, it is unlimited, and to be obedient to it demands that you submit to him. Obeying the king is more than performing a required task. Obeying the king requires surrendering your will to the will of the king. Jesus says, follow me. That's not qualified by saying, follow me here and then no further. It's not qualified by saying, follow me for a season or follow me for a day or follow me until we get some task finished. He simply says, follow me. That's unqualified, it's unlimited, and it requires Philip to surrender his will, to submit his will to the will of Jesus. What does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to go wherever Jesus is going and to do whatever Jesus is doing. That means that Jesus' will becomes Philip's will. He submits his will to the kingship, the lordship of Jesus. Friends, when the king commands that you follow him, you do not put it off until you have more time. When the king commands you to follow him, you don't try to fit obedience into your schedule. When the king commands you to follow him, you don't agree to follow him for a season or ask, can you wait until there's a better time for you to follow him? To follow the king requires a total surrender of your will to his. Friends, Jesus is the king of kings. And he commands you to follow him. And if you're going to follow the king of kings, you must surrender your will at his feet and follow him today. Somebody say amen. Amen. Submit to the lordship of Jesus. Submit to the kingship of Jesus. Number two. There's something that happens that we just see that flows naturally out of Philip's response of obedience to Jesus, and that is that 
he invites others to follow. So it tells us that Philip immediately invites Nathanael. Look in verse 46 with me. Verse 46, it says, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. I want you to come and know the king. Now, a couple of things here about inviting others to follow. Number one, what is happening here is that Philip simply is testifying to the truth. Listen to me very carefully on this point. One of the lies of Satan that has been rather effective in weakening the church's ability and power to share their faith is, a, is, to, is to reduce your understanding of being believing that Jesus is the king and following him, to reduce it down to nothing more than a personal experience. It is true that all who come to Jesus in faith must come through a personal faith and belief. That is absolutely true. But listen, it is a lie that who Jesus is is limited to your personal opinion. Do you understand what I'm saying? My favorite restaurant in the whole wide world, some of y'all know this, is a drugstore in Columbus, Georgia, Dinglewood Pharmacy. They still have the old lunch counter, and they sell a scrambled dog. Now, if you don't know what a scrambled dog is, your life is not yet complete. They serve it in a bowl. You eat it with a spoon. It's a cheap red hot dog on a bun with, with chili laid over it and American cheese and onions and oyster crackers. And if you're really adventurous, you put a little ketchup and mustard on it, and it is absolutely good. Now, the reason why it's good is because it's a Columbus staple. If you grow up in Columbus, if you ever find somebody that says they're from Columbus and they don't know uh, Dinglewood Scramble Dog, they're not really from Columbus. Because if you're, if, you're, if you're from Columbus, you know this, you love this, it, and part of the goodness is the nostalgia of where it is and, and all those sort of things. When you go there, you see people you know. I've quit inviting people to go to Dinglewood. Quit inviting people to go to Dinglewood. Do you know why? Because people who are not from Columbus don't appreciate the delicacy of a cheap red hot dog. Amen? So they hear me talk amazingly about this hot dog, and I've had a few experiences where where folks aren't from Columbus and, and they're there and they're like, let me take you and buy you a scrambled dog. And so I take them to Dinglewood and they eat the, the scrambled dog and they are not, they don't find it a life-changing experience. And it hurts my feelings every time. And so what I've decided to do from here on out, I'm only going to eat scrambled dogs with people who like scrambled dogs. Amen? You know why that happens? It's because my understanding of what is good is a personal experience. What you think is good, I may not agree with. What I think is good, you may not agree with. And it is possible, it is possible, I will concede, though not, I, I will concede, it is possible for you to go to Dinglewood Scramble Dog and not like it. Now, you and I won't be friends after that, but it is possible for you not to like it. But listen to me. That's because preferences of food is nothing more than a personal opinion. But the kingship and the lordship of Jesus is not a personal opinion. It is an eternal truth. You hear me? There's a difference. Oh, there's an eternal difference. There's a salvation difference here. 
Friends, Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, whether or not you or anybody else on this earth agrees or acknowledges it. Now, the Bible says there's coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. That's a day when the, when, when the lordship, the, the grandeur, the sovereignty, the, might, the, the mightiness, the glory of Jesus will not be able to be denied by anyone, both those who've been saved and those who are under condemnation. Because the lordship of Jesus, the kingship of Jesus, the sovereignty of Jesus is not something that is derived from our opinion. It is not something derived by something that we have manifested ourselves. It is an eternal truth declared by God for all of eternity. He has not become the king of kings. He has been, he is, and he is forever the king of kings. And so what Philip is saying is, listen, not that I have discovered something that we just made up. No, he's saying, I have found the truth. Jesus is the one in whom we've been waiting and hoping for. The nature, the character, the authority of God are not, are not defined by the mental ascent of man. The nature, the character, and the authority are eternal of God are eternally established by God himself. Philip nor Nathaniel's belief does not make Jesus king. They simply acknowledge, are, are acknowledging what already is. They have found the king of kings. In verse 45, Philip goes to Nathaniel and he tells him that he's found the Messiah that they have been waiting on. Philip's testimony is that we have found the one that Moses, that test, that Moses through the law testified to and that the prophets foretold that would come. Now listen to me carefully, believers. The obligation of believers is not to convince the world through techniques and programs of the, of the sovereignty of Jesus. The obligation of believers is simply to declare the truth as to who Jesus is. Do you hear me? There will be some that you, when you bring them to Jesus, they'll say, nope, don't think so. You're not obligated to trick, to convince, to, to have some special technique to convince people to, to understand who Jesus is, but you are obligated to bring them to his throne and say, we have found the king. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who, fills, who, who fulfills the law's demands and the prophet's predictions. Jesus is the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords the one who saves us from our sins. Invite others to come and know the king. One last thing. And this is just a word of encouragement to those of you who have believed. And that is that in verse 49, Nathaniel confesses Jesus as king. Look at what he does. In verse 49, Nathaniel answered him and says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, what had happened before verse 49 is when Nathaniel hears where Jesus is from, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's reacting to the fact that Nazareth was a backwater, backwoods, small town place. What good can come from there? Philip just says, come and see. When they get there, Jesus speaks first. And Jesus says, verse 47, 
Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel says, how in the world do you know who I am? And Jesus says, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that's when Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, two things here I want you to see. Number one, salvation comes through confessing and believing. Nathaniel was overwhelmed by Jesus knowing who he was, what was the, the desire of his heart, and what he was doing before Philip called him. And I want you to understand this is more than sort of a parlor trick or some type of trickery. It would have been possible, I guess, to know his name and even some other bio, uh, bio, uh, biographical information about Nathaniel. Maybe Jesus could have could have known that beforehand and just sort of regurgitated it back. But what Jesus says about Nathaniel is not just his name and where he's from. Notice what he says is he is describing Nathaniel's heart. So he says in verse 40, uh, 40, um, 48, excuse me, 47, he says, um, behold an Israelite, Indeed, in whom there is no deceit. In other words, Jesus knew the nature of Nathanael's heart. He was an Israelite indeed. In other words, he, he was a true seeker of God and in whom there was no deceit. In other words, he was truly seeking to know the Messiah and serve God well. And to this, Nathanael confesses two things about Jesus. He says, you are the son of God and you are king of Israel. By confessing him as son of God, he's confessing that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as confessing him as the king of Israel, he's confessing that Jesus is the one who truly fulfills the Davidic covenant that the descendant of David would sit on the throne, on his throne forever. Now listen to me carefully. One of the big questions that you and I ought to ask is how can you be right with God? How can, in our modern vernacular, how can you be saved? Listen very carefully. Salvation begins with confessing who Jesus is. Now, your confession doesn't make Jesus those things. Your confession is acknowledging that the, your heart believes what is true about Jesus, that he is indeed the Messiah that he is indeed God, that he does fulfill the promise of Scripture, that he fulfills the law, that he is the Lamb of God who came to save us from our sins. The invitation of the gospel is still to come and confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Confess him as Lord. Confess him as king of Israel, king of kings, king of your very heart. But I, this is the word of encouragement that I, I, I want you to see as well. Jesus's response to Nathaniel's confession and belief is quite interesting. Because he says to, to Nathaniel, your faith will, uh, will give you sight to know and to know more. So listen to what Jesus says. I mean, you would have thought he would have said, way to go, Nathaniel. But he says this, because, you, because I, said, I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. 
So to, to, to Nathaniel's confession, Jesus responds with a pretty amazing encouragement. And this is what he's saying. You will see more and you will know more. When you come to salvation, what happens is God awakens you. He opens your eyes to what is true. That's what we've been saying all along. Jesus doesn't become king when you confess him as king, but you become aware of, you, become to the, you come to the knowledge of who Jesus is. Nathaniel's eyes have been opened to who Jesus is, but in response, Jesus declares that his faith will give him sight to know so much more. The Christmas story is a wonderful and amazing testimony to the glory of God. We celebrate on Christmas Day that God in all of his glory left heaven on purpose to be born of a virgin in the flesh to dwell with us. Friends, if, that's, that's, if that was the entirety of the gospel right there, that would be amazing. That would be beyond amazing just by itself. God stepped out of God, God of the glory of heaven to dwell with us in the messed up, sin-cursed world. That's pretty amazing. The Bible goes on to say, though, that Jesus lived without sin. Lived perfectly, without sin. And, and would eventually be crucified by men, whom he came to say would be crucified by sin, by, by men, on a sinner's cross, even though he knew no sin. But he did so willingly and purposefully so that he could be the sacrifice, the substitute for our sin. That's pretty amazing. But there's more. Jesus, who physically died for our sin, was put in the grave like dead people are. But three days later, unlike anybody else in all of history, rose again never to die. And the Bible says if you believe on Jesus, you too will enjoy the resurrection. He's the first fruits of many more to come of those who believe. And I think what Jesus is saying in this moment to Nathaniel is, brother, you've gotten a glimpse of something amazing. I am indeed the Son of God. I am indeed the King of Israel, the Lord of Lords, the King of all creation. But there's more. Oh, there's so much more. There's a hymn, you know it, Amazing Grace, but there's a line in that hymn that goes like this. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, this is the line that I think captures what I'm trying to communicate. We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. I'm convinced that eternity it will not be enough to plumb the depths of God's glory. In other words, when we've been there eternity upon eternity, the next morning we'll discover that God was more glorious than we thought the day before. And I don't know how you count days in eternity. I'm just using that as a phrase. I think every moment we will, we will discover that God's glory was greater than what we thought the moment before. And that is true of every other character of God. I think every moment of eternity, our wonder of God's glory will grow. I think every moment of eternity, we will, understand, we will appreciate more the greatness of God's truth, his authority, his power, his righteousness, his goodness, all of those characteristics of God. 
I think that's what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel. Yes, this is true. Good and right confession. But you're going to see more. You're going to know more. Oh, you're going to experience more. Do some of you remember when you came to know Jesus? How wonderful that moment was. And do you remember early in your faith how you thought you knew everything? And as you walk with the Lord, the more you learn that you didn't know, the more of God's grace you realize you didn't appreciate. I hope that was a positive experience for you as you came to know God's grace was greater than you, you understood, that his mercy is more costly, more beautiful than you imagined, that his truth is greater and more wonderful than you can even comprehend. Friends, faith gives sight to who Jesus is. But knowing who Jesus is gives sight to greater things for all of eternity, even when we've been there 10,000 years. Amen. Titles are important. Titles indicate importance, rank, and authority. Most of us in our jobs, in our careers, have a title that says something about what we can do, who we have authority over, who we answer to, and who answers to us. Earlier this year, the longest ruling monarch of England, Queen Elizabeth II, died at age 96. Now, we've already said we're Americans, we're thankful we don't have a monarch, but Americans are pretty fascinated by the monarchy and by, by Queen Elizabeth II and all the pomp and circumstance that goes along with with uh, the royalty there. As a young girl and a young woman, she had been known at various times as Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth of York, Her Royal Highness the, uh, the Princess Elizabeth, and Her Royal Highness the Princess Elizabeth, Duchess of Edinburgh. But on February the 6th, 1952, she took the title of Her Majesty the Queen and held that title until her death. But as kings and queens go, she had a lot more titles than just that. For every, um, she, had, she had titles that were that indicated where other lands that she ruled. She had honorific titles. She had military position titles throughout Britain and the Commonwealth. In each of her realms, she has a distinct title that referenced the country and its territories. In the Channel Islands and Isle of Man, which are crown dependencies rather than separate realms, she's known as Duke of Normandy and Lord of Man, respectively. She also has additional titles, including Defender of the Faith and Duke of Lancaster. Now, I tried to figure out how many actual titles she had. I got a little lost. As best as I can count, beyond her title of queen, she has 16 other titles referencing countries and territories and held the rank of commander-in-chief of both the Canadian Armed Forces and British Armed Forces. And if you were to speak of all her titles and honors, that would consume way more than one or two breaths, and it would take quite a long time. All of those things were to indicate her authority, her position, her power, her importance, her rank. But like it is appointed to all others with and without titles, she now lies in her grave. And not a single one of those titles means a thing today. Jesus is the king of kings. He wore a crown not of jewels, but of thorns. 
Jesus is the King of Kings, but he did not receive honors of men, but our hate and our derision. Jesus is the King of Kings and would die and would be laid in a tomb, but unlike all others, he would not remain there, but would rise again. His titles are not temporary. His titles do not fade. His titles are his titles that have been his titles for eternity and will be his titles for eternity. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the King of Kings who saves us from our sins. Jesus is the Lord of Lords who lives today and rules today. His kingdom has no end. And all those who believe will be saved. All those who believe bow the knee and confess him as king of their lives and king of their hearts. The beckoning, the beckoning of the gospel remains the same as it was that Jesus spoke to Philip those many years ago. Follow me. And if you have beheld Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords, the answer always is, yes, Lord. Come and worship the King today. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 10.30 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the kingdom.